I, you know, I, I timed it. You know, Gretchen had just batted, so I thought, well, take him now. I'll get back in time, see her bat again or whatever. I walk back in. I walk into the park, and somebody commented about how some Bloomington South player just hit a home run over the fence. And I'm like, oh, that's, oh, wow, that's pretty big. Wow. So then I, I, get by the, I stand by the fence, and I'm watching the game, and some guy said, she really killed that one. And I was like, you mean the home run you're talking I didn't see the home run. He goes, you didn't see the home run? And I said, oh, I didn't see the home run. He goes, it was your daughter. <laughs> I, I was like, wait a minute. My daughter, Gretchen, just hit a home run, and I missed it? He goes, yeah, man, you missed it. And I was just like, ugh. But I missed it. I missed the home run. I missed the try. I couldn't re- How many times do we miss something? Either we can't see it, we're not there. How many times do we miss God? How many times do we miss what he's doing, either because we're not focused or we're just not there or we're not looking? You know, the Bible says, Jesus says, my father's always working, always. He's always doing something. I mean, right now, around, in every one of your lives, God is doing something. He's active in and around your life. But my guess is if you're like me, you don't always see it. You miss it. Either you're not looking in the right direction you don't have, you know, your, your eyes aren't focused, eyes of your heart aren't focused. So then how do we become the kind of people that don't miss what God's doing? How do we become the kind of people that, that are looking in the right direction when God's doing something? Because isn't that why we follow Jesus? We want to be a part of what he's doing. I've been doing a series the last oh, number of months, I guess, uh, called Seeing Jesus. And we're looking specifically in the Gospel of Mark, um, which was what most uh, scholars think is the first gospel that was penned down um, by a man named John Mark, who was a traveling companion of Peter, who would have told him eyewitness stories that John Mark recorded 30 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, what, what I've been trying to encourage you to do is take a fresh look at some of these things, because sometimes if you've been around the church at all, or if you've been just an American Christian, yeah, sometimes the stories of the Bible start sounding like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 Right? And you kind of think, yeah, I've heard that one, I've heard that one. But I want to encourage you, not just even this morning, but in general, when you read Scripture, especially when you're reading the Gospels about Jesus, be open to a fresh way that God's going to show you something. Because that's what God loves to do. You can never be too familiar with the Bible. And um, actually what happened, this was interesting, was I was prepared, just I'll leave you a little sense of how I prepare for sermons, and I'm not saying this to impress you or anything, because it's not that impressive, because all of you can understand God's word, but I, I generally, I, you know, I read the passage, I read some books about the passage and try to figure stuff out, and then honestly, I'd, sometimes I'll just say, God, what do you, this is how I say it, Jesus, what do you want the people of X to hear from my mouth from this passage? Because I'm convinced that Jesus knows what all of you need to hear, more than I know. And I can study books, and I can come up with these great conclusions. Well, this, need, this must mean this, and this says this, and I can study this word, and that word, and this phrase. But in the end, the bottom line is, Jesus, what are you saying? What are you saying to me, if I'm studying for myself personally? Or what are you saying for us? Because we believe the Bible's active, and he's always talking. God's always talking. So I kind of, this week, I was kind of studying, I was kind of going this one direction. Okay, I'm going to kind of hit this angle, because I think it's what this passage is saying, and we'll look at the passage in a second. But then, um, 
was yesterday, I'm not sure what time, I think I was working in the yard putting down mulch or whatever, and all of a sudden I thought, oh, wait a minute, I, and I just, I, a whole different perspective came, not like a new dynamic perspective, but I think it's, it was just a different, a different look at this passage that I think God wanted to say, and I'm saying that because I think God speaks to all of us that way. I feel like God was showing me something, I was like, oh, God, I never saw it that way before. But isn't, aren't those aha moments a large part of all of our spiritual growth? Oh, God, I didn't know that. So I'm gonna, we're going to look at this passage today. It's Mark chapter 6. And let me just explain a little bit about uh, how the Bible, not, not how the Bible was written, but how, how we got it. Because the Bible was written in Greek. In the original Greek, there's no punctuation. And there's no, the, the original, when Mark wrote this down, he wrote it down, I told you this before, the, the, there were Christians in Rome, 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, they were basically saying, we, can we, we want to know, know the stories of Jesus more accurately. We've heard these oral histories, how things are passed on. So John Mark, because he heard all the stories from Peter, oral history is passed on. Mark writes it all down. But there's no punctuation in Greek, and there's no chapter divisions or verse divisions. Those were added later by you know, various scribes or people that were copying. But we do believe there's some kind of thematic connection with how they wrote. I mean, I, I can't understand how you can write without punctuation or paragraph divisions or whatever. So, so chapter, the chapters are somewhat uh, man-made, but I do believe that the Holy Spirit could even be behind when they finally decided how to break things up in chapters. So chapter 6 is just interesting because it's like, it's like uh, five or six different scenes of something that happens with Jesus. And at first reading, it's like, doesn't make any sense they don't go together like was was mark just kind of stream of consciousness oh i forgot this and i'll write about this and i'll write about this but if you read the whole when i read reading it through i thought there is a constant theme that goes through all these stories and we're going to kind of touch on all of them and all the stories here's the constant theme jesus is misunderstood and jesus is rejected people miss him they miss jesus they either misunderstand what he's up to or they reject him. And we're going to see here too, it's not just the bad people that miss him. It's his friends and family and disciples who miss him. And it made me start to think, we could all miss him. We, we probably are missing a lot of what God's doing in our lives. Because if his family and friends and his disciples miss what he's up to and misunderstand what he's doing, and in some cases even reject what he's doing, then maybe we need to read ourselves into the story as those people who are missing Jesus. We tend to, I mean, I used to think this way, we tend to read ourselves into the Bible story as the, the one or two people who get it right. Oh yeah, I would totally see it that way. We, we rarely read ourselves into the story as the Pharisees or the evil people or even the knuckle-headed disciples when Jesus said, you guys don't get anything. And somebody challenged me years ago, no, sometimes we need to realize we probably are more like those people we need to read ourselves into the story as if we were the ones who weren't getting it, because that's probably the case even now. We're not getting as much as we think. So let me just, I'm going to read just a part of the passage, and then we'll kind of jump. In my mind, I'm seeing like the uh, uh, scene selection from a DVD. So I'm going to go different scenes and show you how they're all tied together, and then challenge us what it means for us. How do we not miss what Jesus is doing? So the very first part of the chapter, I'm just going to read it so it's not... Um, Chapter 6 says, Jesus left that part of the country. He'd been ministering in other parts of Israel. 
and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Keep in mind, Nazareth was his hometown. Nazareth was a small, small village town. These people he grew up with, these people he may have built things for, he was a carpenter, they knew him, all right? These were familiar friends. They're what, they didn't, you don't travel a lot in those days, so these are kids he would have grown up playing Xbox with, all kinds of things like that. He knew these people. They knew him. So the many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. His friends, people he grew up with, going to, the, going to high school with or whatever they, I mean, he, the, his friends, they scoffed. Well, he's just a carpenter. The son of Mary and the, mother, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Those were brothers that were born later to Joseph and Mary. And when they say he's the son of Mary in that day and age, if you called somebody the son of their mother, it was basically a derogatory term. So they're like, who, who, he's a carpenter. Who, who does he think he is? So these people who were incredibly familiar with Jesus, they're missing him. Then they scoffed, just a carpenter. And then it says, they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among the, his own relatives and family. And because of their unbelief, he could not do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he, Jesus, was amazed at their unbelief. Keep in mind, these are people that know him, and we even know from other parts of Scripture, even his family, his half-siblings were rejecting him. So his friends, people he grew up with, his family, they scoff at him. They're totally missing him. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe sometimes we get so familiar with the Bible and the Jesus stories and the Christian world that maybe we're missing because we're so familiar and anything different than familiar we don't we won't accept because jesus kind of went outside the box and how often are we so focused on well this is the way it's supposed to happen this is the way the messiah is supposed to be this is the way jesus is supposed to work in my life so we're looking right there and then he shows up over here and over there and over here and over there and he does things differently than what we had kind of thought but we're so focused on what's familiar well, that's, that's crazy. That can't be God. So the first story, it's his friends and family are scoffing at him. All right, then the next, the next story kind of unpacks. Then, then it changes, and then he's sending his disciples out. He sends them out two by two, and he gives them authority to cast out demons. So this is like a real spiritual kind of power. He says, you know, giving them authority to cast out demons. And he says, you know, cast out demons to preach repentance and to heal the sick. Okay, there's no rejection there. This is, you know, but then he says, but when you go to these towns, some of the people will accept you and welcome you into your home. Other people will reject the message you're, sa you're speaking. They will miss what you're saying. They'll miss it. They won't believe it. They'll reject it. They'll misunderstand it. So Jesus is already telling his disciples us jesus is saying if i'm misunderstood and rejected so will you be 
And he tells the disciples that. Go, you have this authority. You're going to have supernatural ability to bring wholeness and healing and deliverance to people. But not everybody's going to welcome your message. Not everybody's going to see what Jesus is doing through what you're doing. And, I'm, and I know that some of you have had that experience already, that maybe your family, your friends, people you know, and, and you're kind of showing spiritual interest, and, and they don't welcome that. And if you're feeling maybe misunderstood or rejected, that's really what Jesus is communicating to the disciples. If I'm going to be misunderstood and rejected, so are you. It's a powerful message. Healing, repentance, deliverance. But he's saying there's going to be people that are going to miss it. Then the next story, so that's the first one is, you know, his friends and family miss it. Then he tells the disciples, you're going to have this powerful ministry, but not everybody's going to get it. They're going to miss it. Then the next story seems to come out of nowhere. Because all of a sudden it, it shifts like to a, if it was a movie, it's like shift over to a different, shift back a few years, and it's a story about John the Baptist. Because Jesus is doing all these miracles, and it's getting known, and then Herod, who was the king, uh, in, you know, he was a king under the ru Roman rule, so he wasn't really well liked by the Jews. Herod was the king, and what, what all of a sudden it says now, Herod hears all this stuff happening, what Jesus is doing, and it reminds him, oh my goodness, this is just like John the Baptist. Because Herod knew who John the Baptist was. Because Herod had beheaded John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist was telling Herod, Herod was married to his brother's wife, an illicit sexual marriage. And John the Baptist, speaking on behalf of God, was telling Herod and his wife Herodias, what you're doing is wrong. It's not God, that's not what God wants you to do. And it made Herodias so mad, the wife that she wanted, she had Herod put him in prison, but it said Herod really was intrigued by John, and he loved to listen to John speak, but he was disturbed every time he heard him speak. And John is speaking on behalf of God at this point. So here again, Herod's intrigued, but he misses it. He doesn't, go, he doesn't want to go the whole way and follow what God's telling him to do through John. So this long story, in the middle of this chapter, all of a sudden we hear about something that happens. Herod, Herod's daughter comes in and does this, basically a sexual provocative dance for his, his court. And then he says, oh, we, we don't, that was so beautiful. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Well, this young lady goes to her mom and her mom says, tell Herod, I want John's head on a platter. I want him beheaded because she hated this guy speaking God's word to her. So she was totally rejecting what God was saying through John the Baptist. Herod was intrigued, but now he's caught. And, he, you know, Herod becomes really the first person who dies for the sake of the gospel in the New Testament. Uh, not Herod, John dies, loses his head. So it's like that's right in the middle of this. And it's like, okay, why is that there? I'm thinking, okay, was Mark just kind of, oh, I forgot to tell this story. I think it's there because he's showing, again, somebody's rejecting what God's doing. And granted, we tend to think, oh, yeah, those, that's, we, we know Herod's and we know a lot of Herod. We know people that are really hard-hearted toward God. But that's put right next to his friends and family who reject and misunderstand Jesus. And it's right next to people that the disciples go to are going to miss and misunderstand Jesus. And he's telling this about to John. And keep in mind, too, the original readers of the Gospel of Mark would have been Christians in Rome who were feeling really misunderstood and feeling rejected by their culture. So I think Jesus is 
John, Mark is putting this together to help us realize something. That's part of what following Jesus is going to be. You're going to be misunderstood. Not everybody's going to love your message. So they missed it. Okay, then we go to, then all of a sudden it comes back and it says Jesus and his disciples, or Jesus is teaching on a mountainside, and there's tons of people there, at least 5,000 men plus their families. And it's getting late, and the disciples say to Jesus, hey, it's, um, it's getting late. It's getting kind of close to dinner, and our stomachs are growling, and all these people, they need to eat. So why don't you send them away, tell them to go into McDonald's and White Castle, wherever else they need to get their food, because we can't feed them all. And then Jesus says to the disciples, you feed them. And the disciples totally missing what Jesus is going about to do. <laughs> They say, with what? And I'm guessing that may have been their tone of voice. With what? What do you mean, Jesus? There's, there's thousands of people out there. You want us to feed them? How many times do you feel like God's asked you to do something that is a real stretch, that doesn't make sense, and you don't see the resources to do what God's asked you to do? And your response, and it's totally understandable, is, okay, God, I'll do that, but with what? How am I going to get this to do that? And they're missing him. His disciples are missing what, and they've seen Jesus do miracles. So they're like, yeah, with what, Jesus? What are, you, what are you talking about? And they end up finding Jesus. Says, Go find what you have. And they find this young boy who has some fish and some loaves of bread. Jesus takes the bread and breaks it and blesses it in front and, and asks God to bless it. And then somehow the food multiplies and every single person is full and there's basketfuls left over. You know, there's some, there are some today that would say, and this, uh, this, I've heard this before, but it's definitely what people, oh, that's a, that whole story is about sharing. And once the little boy shared his food, everybody else had their food under their cloaks and they just pulled it out and they all ate together. They all shared with each other. And when you think about that, it's kind of silly. Was everybody just kind of hiding their food till Jesus said something? Because there are people, and, you, and there, are, there is a whole strain of culture today, and has always been, that they will refuse anything that's supernatural. So, oh, that can't be a supernatural happening. There must be a normal explanation that people just had their food in their back pockets, and they pulled it out and shared, and then we had extra food left over. It was a parable. It was a story about sharing. No, it was not a story about sharing. It was a story about supernatural activity of Jesus providing something when they thought they didn't have what they needed. But the disciples missed it. Now think about that. The disciples missed it. The people who saw him do all these incredible things. Because you and I think, at least I think this, yeah, if I would have seen Jesus, you know, heal people and raise people from the dead, I'm sure I would have had the faith to think he can do anything. Yeah, sure, go feed him. No, even they missed it. So if they miss it for seeing incredible things, isn't it understandable and possible that we may be missing what God's doing in our lives? We may be missing what Jesus is about to do. You may be sensing Jesus asking to do something, and you're like, with what? And so you don't even try. Don't miss Jesus on those things. Then the last, the last little vignette from chapter 6, Jesus disciples get in the boat sea of galilee which is like a large 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 lake it's miles across you can see across it but and it's opened of torrent uh out of the blue kind of storms so jesus for some reason isn't in the boat with them they get in the boat 
and a storm comes up. And it says that Jesus could tell, he could see or whatever, that they were terrified. And these are fishermen who are used to storms, used to boats, used to water. They were terrified. And then the Bible says, again, this is another of those supernatural things, but we believe these things happen. It's the weird meter. I've talked about the weird meter. The weird meter goes up on these things, but if the invisible world's real, then these things happen. The Bible tells us Jesus walked out on the water to them. And it said when they saw him, they thought they were seeing a ghost. And they were terrified. Because they still didn't see. They, they were missing it. They were missing who Jesus was and what he, what he could do. It says Jesus, Jesus got into the boat. And the disciples, understandably, were amazed. And it said, but they... Scripture says, because they didn't understand what the feeding of the 5,000 had been about. They, didn't un they were missing who Jesus really was. And then Jesus, and even said, because their hearts were hard. It's like, ouch. These are the disciples. We usually think the hard-hearted people are the sinners and the pagans and the prostitutes and all the bad people. They're the hard-hearted people. Because that phrase is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament a lot for people that, that will not, that miss God. Because it, it's like a seed, of, a seed falling on hard ground. It doesn't sink. It doesn't take root at all. They're hard-hearted. But it's the analogy of people who miss Jesus, who misunderstand what he's doing, or just downright reject and don't want to do what he's asking them to do. So when I'm thinking about this a couple days ago, it just kind of hit me, wow. Everybody, anybody, can misunderstand and reject what Jesus is doing. And again, we tend to think it's, oh, it's those pagans or those people that are just half into Christianity. They're the ones who miss it. They're hard-hearted. But these are his family members, his boyhood friends, and his disciples who saw all that he did. And they were missing what Jesus was doing. And, and even says they were hard-hearted. And they, some of them, his friends scoffed at him. And it was one of those things where when I had this aha moment, and again, everybody, had, God does aha moments for all of us, I just thought, wow, I, if I were to read myself into the story, there's no, there's no good person to be. Everybody misses. You know, we, we love to read the stories where there's somebody gets it, but nobody gets it. His family doesn't get it. His friends don't get it. His disciples don't get him. They don't see what he's doing. They don't see what Jesus is capable of. And they're just like hard-hearted. So then my conclusion was, this is a gathering of hard-hearted people here this morning. And I don't mean that in a mean kind of way, but I'm saying there are parts of all of our hearts that are not yet ready to see what Jesus wants to do in our lives. And I don't believe it's because any of us don't want that. We just... Don't know. We haven't seen it. Because we can read the New Testament because we read it by looking back from history. And we can say, oh, yeah, we can see what Jesus did. Oh, yeah, he can feed 5,000. Oh, yeah, he can do that. Oh, yeah, he can walk on water. He can heal. He can do this. He can raise the dead. Of course, we know he can do that. But when we look this way into the, in the next week of our lives and into tomorrow and into our future, and, and we feel like God's calling to stretch us and wanting to do something supernaturally powerful through our lives we don't see it 
or we don't believe it. Sometimes you're like, yeah, but I, I've seen that, but because it's all history and past. And, but when Jesus asks you to make a stretch relationally or make a stretch with your money or make a stretch with a change of plans for your life, we tend to think, well, I don't know how that would happen. I mean, with what? Kind of like this, how would that happen? And we may even scoff, that, that, that must not be God, because God wouldn't tell me to do something that's not reasonable and rational and predictable. But yet we look at the Bible, and it's all, it's all full of times where Jesus did things that were unreasonable, irrational, unpredictable, and uncomfortable, but powerful and amazing in healing and deliverance. So what are you facing now is the question I'm going to ask. What's in front of you now? What do you sense Jesus might be doing in your life? Again, Jesus said, my father's always at work. God's always at work. And you might think, well, not in my life. I don't know the Bible well enough. I'm not a good enough Christian. That doesn't make any difference. He's always at work in your life, through your life, in the lives of your friends, in the lives of your family, in the lives of people you don't know yet, in the lives of strangers, in the lives of widows, orphans. You don't know. But then it seems like, it seems like then the mission or the challenge for those of us who follow Jesus is, how do we make sure we see? I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to miss any home runs Jesus hits. I don't want to, I don't want to miss being a part of something that he wants me to do. So one of the prayers we've prayed lately that Paul talked about to the Ephesians was he prayed for the church, the Ephesians, that God would open the eyes of their hearts. Because if we're going to see supernatural things Jesus wants to do, it takes a supernatural ophthalmologist to open up the eyes of our hearts, and we need to pray that way. I mean, to be willing to see what God does. And then even with the whole idea of a hard heart, I'm doing this like hard ground. I have, I have tons of hard places in our yard because we have... We have moles in our yard, and we, they've taken root there for probably seven or eight years, and I'm going to start giving them names and call them my friends. I don't know what else to do. I've tried to kill them every way possible. I've tried everything, everything. Somebody has an idea, let me know. That's a side thing. That's later. Um, I've even tried wrapping peanut butter inside steel wool and stuffing it into the mole holes, because I read somewhere if they try to eat it, they'll choke. Well, I don't know. I think they just get stronger and more resilient. So I think I've got super, I've got super moles in my yard, and we got, I mean, we got... I get these little gas things, you can gas them, and the next day they're, they're laughing at me. Ha, 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 we'll build a bigger mole hole this time. So but the mole holes end up, they, when they don't, if I don't go out there soon enough and turn over, it eventually becomes hard ground. Well, I'm throwing grass seed out a month or so ago, and I'm thinking, okay, I probably need to plow that up. And I get somebody's aerator, and I punch holes in my ground and try to soften the hard ground because it won't take the seed unless I've, so, unless I've done something rake it hard, take an aerator and smash into the ground to break up the hard surface. I don't know if I want God to do that to my heart, though. That sounds a little bit violent. Because I'd like to think everything in my heart is soft-hearted to God. But if it's possible for the disciples and his friends and family to have hard, hard, hard places in their hearts, then it's probably possible, if not, well, it's not possible, it's reality that I have hard places in my heart, and so do you. So how do, you, how, how do those hard places become soft, or at least plowable? One of the things, uh, I remember reading, a, I think it was a quote, I think it was C.S. Lewis, who was a, a British Christian 
Oxford professor in 100 years, or not 100 years, 50, 60 years ago. And one of his quotes was, he's talking about praying that God would plow up our hearts. And I thought, that sounds really good, but it sounds kind of painful, because I, I, I don't want a plow, and I mean, it's tearing, and it's ripping, and it's breaking. And so if we want to be the kind of people that, it are, that are not, is the kind of people who aren't missing what Jesus wants to do in your life, I think that's preceded by you praying or being willing to ask God, okay, God, you find the hard places in my heart and plow them up. No conditions, God. You plow them up. Because the minute you get a condition, then God doesn't really like to deal with people who give him conditions. But if you say, God, no, no conditions. There's, I know there's parts of my heart. I don't know what they are, but I'm sure there are some because there were in these disciples and your friends and family. So I'm sure there's some places in my heart that I've long forgotten about that I'm not as receptive to you as I think, as I know I want to be. So God, you have to find that. You have to take your aerator to that or your rake or whatever and break it up because I, I want to be receptive to whatever you're doing. But, but friends, that's a real scary prayer to pray. Because he'll do what you ask him to do. And it takes God tearing and ripping and poking holes in the soil of your heart so you'll be receptive to do what he wants to do. And if we stop right there, oh, that's hard. Why would I do that? No, but because if we do that, then we're open to the things. And the disciples actually were casting out demons. They were bringing healing to people. People's lives were being changed. You read about the disciples later on in the book of Acts. They were bold. They were unintimidated. They had power. They had forgiveness. They were courageous. They were loving. They were joyful. And that's because they were on the other side of being plowed. So if you want to be that kind of person, courageous, joyful, full of the life that comes from God, bold, risk-taker, loving, forgiving, kind, and merciful in supernatural, abnormal kind of ways, you cannot get there apart from the plowing of your heart. You can't. But once you give God full reign to make sure every part of your heart is open to what he wants to do, there is no limit to what God can do in your life or through your life. There's no limit. There's no limit. <clears throat> There's no limit to what God can do through this group of people, whether you're a student who's in, on campus or going home for the summer, or whether you're Bloomingtonians who have 47401, 403, or 402 zip codes and, ha and have and will have for the next number of years. Why couldn't God change something in Bloomington? God's at work in Bloomington. He's looking for people, ordinary people like us, to see what he's doing and join into what he's doing to bring healing and hope and restoration to the, our friends and family and neighbors in Bloomington who are far from God. It's no, there's, no, there's no limit to what God could do. He took this motley crew of small of disciples and they changed the world, changed the world. They changed the world. Don't, don't ever think that you can't be a change agent in your family, 
in your place of work or in this city of Bloomington. Because if they could change the world, God can use us to change. And I don't mean change, like let's change it to make it more conservative and Republican or whatever. No, change it to make it more like the heart of God. Forgiveness, courage, mercy, love, grace, wholeness, joy, reconciliation, those kind of things. So Jesus said, my father's always at work. Um, he's always at work. And I'm going to I'm going to end. I'm going to and right now I'm going to pray that the prayer that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, and I'm going to pray that for myself and you. So just close your eyes with me. God, I pray uh, that the eyes of all of our hearts would be enlightened. I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, just like Paul prayed for his friends in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. And I pray that we would see the hope that you're calling us to, I pray you'd open the eyes of our hearts to see the power that you have, that you say you can work through us to bring healing and deliverance and wholeness to people around us. So God, I pray that you would open the eyes of all of our hearts. And would you give us the courage not to give you conditions? Because we know that we are loved by you intensely and you are for us you are not against us you are for our wholeness our joy you're for our courage you're for our mercy you're for everything you're for us becoming the very people you created us to be so would you give us that kind of heart and that kind of um, openness and that kind of courage and we ask this all in Christ's name amen uh, we finish every week at Exodus with communion